This episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded on the land of the Gadigal Wongal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands. 150 episodes. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Certainly not me. Uh, welcome back. Uh, if you are a repeat offender on this podcast, thank you so, so much for tuning in and checking this out. And if this is your first time, it is so, so awesome to have you here. Really, really appreciate you downloading this and checking this out. My name is David James Young. I'm a freelance writer, journalist, critic, musician, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of dealio I got going on over here. And for 150 episodes now, I have been talking to musicians that I find interesting and want to know more about. Some of them are friends of mine. Some of them I have never met before in my life. Some of them I don't even know, like... I've been set up on a few blind dates with artists that I have never even heard the music of before, and sometimes those have been the most interesting ones and have made really good friendships out of them, so go figure. For the 150th episode of this podcast, however, we are talking about someone I am intimately familiar with, at least from a musical perspective. Let me take you back to, oh, this would have been... I want to say 2004, I'm in 8th grade, I am in high school, and I see this music video on Rage, late night television show, it's this two-piece, one's playing piano, one's playing drums, they are covered in white makeup, and all this bizarre stuff all over their faces, it's this weird gothic look, they don't have a bass player, they don't have a guitar player, it's a piano and drums duo. They're playing this loud, frantic, intense song, which is unlike anything I've ever heard before. It blows my fucking mind. The band is the Dresden Dolls, and I make sure to remember that because I go through every page on my school diary writing down the name The Dresden Dolls so I don't forget it. This would start a love affair that would last the ages. The Dresden Dolls would become one of my favorite bands in high school. And then when Amanda Palmer went solo in 2008, I followed her into that. And I've always held a unique fascination with this woman. And for the first time face-to-face, I got to speak to her a few weeks ago. Amanda Palmer is... An American singer, songwriter, activist, writer, occasional poet, former street artist, and an ongoing fascinating fixture within alternative pop culture. I've loved a lot of what Amanda does. I have disagreed with a lot of what Amanda does. I've never hated anything she's done, but I've definitely been disappointed in her as well. 
She is a complicated figure. She's acutely aware of how divisive she can be in terms of her creative output and uh, the way that she expresses herself and, you know, the way that she goes about things. And as many issues as I've had with some of the ways that she's handled things in the past, I've always seen the humanity within her and I've always found a way to engage and interact with that and think about how she operates, why she operates that way, etc., etc. She's a fascinating person. I've interviewed her several times over the years, over the phone, but this was our first time talking face-to-face. And I think getting the chance to talk to someone face-to-face about these things, you get something very real and very honest and very forthright. And I think that's what we got with this episode. I'm really, really happy with how this turned out. I could have gone for another couple hours, honestly, talking with Amanda. There was so much that we didn't even get to just because we were so transfixed on various points of her career. For what it's worth, I had an incredible time talking to Amanda. And if you're a fan, you'll really enjoy this. If you're not a fan, you might get something out of this. Honestly, I think... Wherever you stand on Amanda, I think if you hear her out and you have a listen to the conversation that we have here, you really might get something special out of it. I want to give a big thank you to Amy and Emily and Beck and everyone over at Deathproof PR for helping to set this one up. I want to give a thank you to Adam Buncher for doing the sound edit on this. And of course, I want to thank Amanda for her time. She is on tour through Australia up until, I think, the start of March. So if you go to amandapalmer.com, you'll be able to find all the details there. And of course, you can follow along on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Amanda Palmer. If you like this podcast and you want to support it in one way, shape or form, then there are a few ways that you can do that. The first of which is rating the podcast five stars and leaving a review over on Apple Podcasts. That is massively, massively appreciated. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. That's always a big boost and that helps us a lot. And if you have some money lying around and you would like to support independent Australian music content, then you can do so by supporting me over on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you are getting access to bonus content, articles, op-eds, playlists, behind-the-scenes stuff, everything that I have going on as a writer, a musician, and as a podcaster. Head over to patreon.com slash Young for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash David James Young. In the meantime, if you would like to get in touch, barbandspod at gmail.com is your destination. B-A-R-B-A-N-D-S-P-O-D. Would absolutely love to hear from you if you have some feedback on this episode, on any of our episodes. If you would like to suggest a guest, if you would like to get involved in terms of advertising, any Anything you have going on, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Barbands is open for business. I am one email away, barbandspod at gmail.com. Okay, thank you again for 150 episodes. Thank you so much for the support. I literally could not do this without you guys. Whether it's your first time or your 150th time, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so, so much. 
I'm David James Young. All my friends are in bar bands, including Amanda fucking Palmer. I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands. Today, I would like to introduce you to my friend, Amanda Palmer. Hi, friend. How are you? I'm, re- I'm really good, despite the fact that the world is burning. Mm. Well, this part specifically. I mean, yeah. kind of all of it. But yeah, here right now, it's <laughs> a lot of, really... <laughs> lot of literal and metaphorical. Like, uh, oh, my yeah. God. It's all, it's all happening. Endless poetry forever. Yeah, it's been a really strange week in Australia. Yeah, and you've been here this entire time. I've been here since a little before Christmas. Yeah, right, right, right. So, full on time to be here. <laughs> How have you handled it? You know, with this strange, like, bizarre combination of comfort and distance that always comes when you're in a foreign territory that isn't your hometown, but catastrophe is striking. And I have wound up in some, like, I've toured for 20 years, so, yeah. like... It's inevitable that you're going to wind up in some places when some things are happening. Yeah. But I have a weird track record of being in places when shitty things are happening. Really? Yeah. There was one tour where I was in Iceland when the gigantic volcano ash cloud exploded. Holy shit. Like, I landed right after it happened. Um, I was getting on a plane to go to Christchurch when the earthquake happened, that same tour. You travel around and disaster strikes everywhere. Yeah. And then if you just want to be around a bunch of mass shootings, just hang out in America at all hours. Yeah. And people will just shoot and kill each other. So there's that. It's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how, how are you doing? <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> taking it day by day, same as you, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, this is not your first rodeo when it comes to Australia. This is probably, probably the seventh, eighth, ninth something up there like it's between between tour. you and Dresden Dolls and whatever else you've been here quite a bit for the past 15 years uh, my first trip to Australia was 2000 so I'm on my 19th Australian anniversary there you go oh was that it was for Mardi Gras wasn't it it was for Adelaide Fringe oh why yeah, I wasn't yeah. even in a band yet yeah, I right. just literally started my band but I came over here my very first Australian trip was as a busker it wasn't on tour, I, there was no Dresden Dolls yet. It was just me and a box standing on a street corner on, on Rundle Mall at the Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a way to get introduced to Australia. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I, it was love at first sight with me in this country. Mm. When was the first time Dresden came out here? That was, that was 05, 06? Uh, the Dresden Dolls would have come out here on our first record, so it was... Probably late 2004, early 2005. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. I, we probably came back the next year and or the year after on mm. Yes, Virginia, which yeah. was our second record. And I've been back here on every record I've put out. Yeah. And, and I came here to record one of those records. And I came here to write my book. So in the last 19 years of my life, I think I've been here at least nine American winters, your summers. Mm. What, do you, what do you feel it is that... Why? Why? Why won't you leave us alone? It's you and Henry Rollins and Jeff Martin. You just won't fucking leave us alone. We like you. 
<laughs> you know, I think it's because you like us. This is true. This um, is true. I, like most human creatures, tend to go where I feel welcome. Mm. And Australia has always made me feel really welcome. You know, the activists, the musicians, the press, the people. I don't know why. It, it, it's just like any other chemistry and relationship. I've always felt really at home here. And then, and then it becomes reciprocal. Because yeah. it's like, wait, do you like me? I like you. Wait, <laughs> we like each other. Oh, my God. Do you want to be friends? Should oh, my we, God. Do you want to get pizza? <laughs> and then it just grows and grows and grows. And all of a sudden, you're, like, having sex and having children and getting married. And I feel, you know, Neil, my husband, and I have uh, five-year visas right now. They're yeah. gifted and talented visas. Really? Uh, and we had to jump through a lot of hoops to, to get them. But we are sort of semi, you know, honorary weirdo citizens at the moment. Amazing. So you reckon after this tour, you'll probably just hang around for a bit longer? Well, I'm here in Australia for two and a half months. And uh-huh. then I chuck myself over to New Zealand for about 10 days to do a tour over there. Yeah. And after that, I will have been away from our house in New York for seven months. Hectic. And it's time to go home. <laughs> I, I'm assuming you got people looking after it. We got some pals. Yeah, we have some pals uh, coming and going and using. Someone's the gonna feed the cat. You know, we tour too much to have a cat, but that might change. <laughs> okay, so I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed over from being something that you were watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc. To this is what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to make music. I want to be in a band, all that sort of stuff. Can you tell me how music kind of factored into your childhood and your upbringing and if there was a kind of moment where it's just like you, maybe you saw something or you heard something and just like, I'm going to do that? There was no one single moment. And I kind of can't remember an era of childhood where I didn't pretty single-mindedly want to do that thing. Right. But, you know, when you're a child and you don't understand anything, that thing was pretty amorphous. And, you know, especially being a kid in the suburbs who didn't have artistic parents, my knowledge of what it meant to be a musician was really undereducated. You know, like, I sang in the church choir, but I didn't know an actual person who was a gigging musician. It just wasn't mm. a job that the adults around me mm. had. All of the adults that I knew were like real adults with, with real jobs and they put on business clothes and they went to offices and, you know, or they were teachers or they were, you know, or they were the people who ran the shops, but there was no music in the town that I grew up in. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, my kid is going to gigs all the time and getting all of this exposure to like, People tuning guitars and people doing sound checks yeah, and people yeah. making music and people, and I just wasn't exposed to any of that. So I didn't. I knew that people did it because I had their records. Yeah. And I knew that people did it because I watched MTV, but I just had no idea how you did it. Did it? Yeah. But I knew I wanted to do whatever the it was. Yeah. I just didn't have a path or a guide or a mentor. So it was pretty confusing because it was like I had this passionate drive within me but nowhere to take it Mm. except to write songs. I knew that if I was going to be one of the people who did the thing, I was going to need to write the songs because that's what all those people did. Yeah. 
At least I assumed that they did. I didn't know back then that like Madonna wasn't actually writing all her own songs. I just assumed, <laughs> like I, I was so naive about so many things. I also thought that all radio was just like people playing music that they liked. Like yeah. I just didn't know how it worked. And what's really funny, you mentioned bands. Like I remember there were some kids I was in high school with and they wanted to start a band and I yeah. didn't really, I didn't know how simple it was to like plug in instruments and actually sound like the bands I listened to on CDs and tapes and I remember yeah. the first time some boys that I knew came over to my house and like one plugged in a guitar and one plugged in a bass and one brought his little drum kit over and I plugged in my synthesizer to a teeny keyboard amp I had and I remember listening to all of it and going like, oh my god, like we sound like that thing that the real people do yeah. when they do the real thing. I didn't know that you could just do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that really blew my mind. I remember being so excited. There's another thing I remember about that day, which is, like, it was me and these three boys. We were all 14, 15. And I was like, let's all put on lipstick. Quick, to the bathroom. And two of them were like, yeah, cool, The Cure, Robert Smith. And one of them was like, mm. No. 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 <laughs> no. And it's funny, like, I remember, like, the if you could look at the graph of that day and the spikes of excitement, it was like, spike of excitement number one. Oh, my God, plugging in instruments and playing them all at the same time makes you sound like a real band. Yeah. Spike of excitement number two, which was, like, three times as high as, like, I just made everyone put on lipstick. <laughs> 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 Both very Amanda palmer moments. Totally. Yeah. So you went, you were in Massachusetts growing up? That was in Lexington, Massachusetts, my hometown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, how far out is that from, like, quote-unquote, the city? Like, is oh, it like a small town? Oh, not far. Yeah? Not far. Um, every weekend I would walk to the center of town, which is a 10-minute walk, get on the bus. The bus took about 35 minutes. Then I'd wait at the subway, and then in about 20 minutes on the subway, I would be in the thick of what I considered the heart of the universe, which was Harvard Square, Cambridge, which is where the record stores were. You could, get, you could get records, you could get used records, you could get used books, you could buy incense, you could buy a bong, you could get your ears pierced. It was everything. Well, what could you want? And that was, I mean, to me, that was the city. That was like the, yeah. that was the heart of it all. There was nowhere else to, to be and nowhere else to go. That was just everything. So I can imagine having that pretty immediate access meant that you were kind of had music in your face like a lot, you know, throughout your, you know, your, your teens and kind of your coming of age era, kind of just like, because that would have been like, what, late 80s, early 90s as well? That was, yeah. I mean, I was in high school from 90 to 94. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Formative high school years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would have been around the time of like grunge blowing up and right, everything. Right, but what was funny is that I missed grunge. How if, did you miss grunge? I missed grunge because of who I was hanging out with. And when you look at me, you would think that I would have been like the ultimate like Riot Girl, Bikini Kill, yeah, L7, yeah. Nirvana, Hole. Well, it's just because I know you've covered Polly as well. Yeah. yeah, so I didn't find out about a lot of that music until later. Because I started dating and fell in love with a German transplant from Berlin right. named Jason, who was the end-all and be-all in my existence. He was older than me. I, when I was 15, he was probably 18 or 19. Right. And he came from another planet. 
This is a guy who had just been like totally come of age in West Berlin, right? In the late '80s, like height of awesomeness, like just around the time the wall was falling. Nick Cave birthday party, the dawn of techno, experimental music, Einstein's and Neubauten. And he ushered me into an entirely different corridor of music, which was the legendary Pink Dots and Nick Cave and Depeche Mode and PJ Harvey and Swans and Coil and yeah. Duck and June and Can. And to me, that was where it was at. And all of that other music that people were talking about and listening to was just some other universe that I wasn't interested in. Right. That's full on. It was... And I didn't know how unique it was at the time because I was just in it. Yeah. You don't know anything else. You don't know anything else. <laughs> I just knew that when I went to Tower Records, I went to the import section yep. and wanted to see what new current 93 or legendary Pink Dots or Death in June record I could buy for $25. Oh, yeah, because you'd always have to pay extra, wouldn't you, you? It was the import from Germany, and you would save up your monies and... Uh, and and that was my, that was my music collection. But also, you know, I had already had my pop upbringing with Madonna and yeah. Cindy Lauper and Prince and Michael Jackson and all of that, which I still loved. Yeah. And I also started getting into different singer songwriters like Leonard Cohen and Robin Hitchcock and, um, you know, Elliot Smith and mm. that sort of stuff started seeping into. And then it was also Cocteau Twins and My Bloody Valentine and, you know, the this sort of like washier melodic side of indie rock you know I just I knew what I liked and mostly what obsessed me was lyrics if I didn't like a band's lyrics it took me two seconds and I would just discard it yeah but if the lyrics intrigued me I would listen over and over and over again so I was really into a wide weird variety of stuff so Death and June in the one you know on the one hand but also like they might be giants yeah of course yeah. into the ground like just flood over and over and over yeah. again and it's weird like I look back at what a lot of the other basic building blocks of an early 90s American girl songwriter was and I missed a lot of it I missed mm. Tori Amos I missed garbage like all yeah. of this stuff that was really huge and really important and in the forefront I just wasn't like, no one shook me and said, hey, you have to listen to Garbage. It just yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> so I missed it. Well, you've, obviously, you've made up for lost time. I've caught so. up. I've <laughs> caught up. I also, I missed Ani DeFranco. And part, yeah, of why right. I missed, part of why I missed Tori Amos and Ani DeFranco is that I knew they were there, but I was also really frightened of them because they were so close to home that it was mm. almost like I was allergic and scared because they were so, it was almost too... You know, that, uh, especially that female competitive thing. I think my little 19-year-old was like, uh, it's almost just like me, but it isn't me. So, yeah. I have to, <laughs> so I'm blinded by it, and I can't relate to it because it's not exactly the choice I would make. And uh, so yeah. fuck it, I'm not that. Don't call me that. Don't tell me that I'm going to like that. And then, as, of course, when I knew better and got into my 20s and really dug into Tori Amos and Anita Franco, I was like, holy shit, this is groundbreaking and incredible and inspiring. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I played myself. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, the same way that you have to hate your parents, like, yeah. there's a lot of stuff you have to, you know, you define yourself as a teenager as a lot, you know, by uh, often by what you aren't. Yeah. Like, I'm not that. I hate yeah, that yeah, yeah. stuff. Rah, 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 rah. 
you know, I thought I hated hip hop. I thought I hated heavy metal. Like I thought I hated a lot of things that I didn't actually hate. I just yeah. didn't know I didn't hate it. That's it. You just gotta take it one by one, and then just like, actually, you know what? That's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, t- I mean, we we carry a lot of prejudice constantly. Yeah. Or we hopefully spend our lives just squeegeeing away the fog of prejudice, whether it's people or music or political ideas or yeah. whatever. Totally. Now, I know you have a very long history in terms of performance, but I'm curious as to when you performed music in front of people for the first time, how old were you? That's an interesting question because uh, I didn't have a debut party. You know, I... Yeah. I was very, very, very scared to perform my songs for anybody for a really long time. Yeah. Because I was insecure and fearful and my songs were weird and personal and, and kind of exposed me. And I mean, I, I can't quite explain the flavor of fear that I felt at 16 when I had these songs and I had written them, but no one had really heard them. I didn't want to play them for my parents. I was kind of scared to play them for my boyfriend. I just didn't really like, I didn't know what you did or how to do it. And I was, and I was too scared. I was just too scared of criticism. Mm. I was more excited to sort of hoard them and tape them and listen to them by myself and, and, you know, because I knew the minute anyone looked at me and said, uh, your song's a piece of shit, I would just, I mean, I'm literally like I would break in half. Yeah. I was too fragile. So it took me a long time to even work up the courage to play any of my songs for an audience. And, you know, I played one song for a kind of a high school crowd in the auditorium, and that was a big deal for me. And I played a song at a cabaret night, and that was a big deal for me. I didn't actually play like a show until I got to college and I finally was like, I'm just going to have to get over this and do it. So I like booked a room, got a piano, put flyers up all over campus and did my first Amanda Palmer show when I was about 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't sleep for three nights before the show. I was so shit scared. What were the songs? Like what kind of stuff were you writing in that early stage? A lot of those songs wound up on the first Dresden Dolls record. Like yeah, Bad right. Habit, Slide. You know, my songs were pretty weird and and angsty yeah they it wasn't easy listening no you know and and that's one of the things it's like when you're when you're sitting at a piano and you're bashing out stuff that's so confrontational Mm. and so dark and so personal it's kind of weird to invite a bunch of strangers into a room and say like hey want to come to my concert yeah and then do that to them and i knew enough to know that i knew enough to know this wasn't going to necessarily be easy for people and I still feel that. I mean, here I am fucking 43 this many years later. Yeah. And I still am like, oh, you're coming to my concert, but do you really know, like, what I'm about to do to you <laughs> and what I'm about to talk about and what I'm about to show you? Yeah. And, like, and are you ready? And how do I prepare you and make sure that I'm not accidentally doing something bad right. or wrong? <laughs> And, you know, that's the thing about music. Like, you, you, there are certain artists where you just know what you're going to get. And, like, if you go to a Taylor Swift concert, like, you just know what it is. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a product, and it may even be an awesome product, but, like, you just don't expect to go to a Taylor Swift show and have her stand there for four hours and talk to you about abortion. No. <laughs> so, yeah, that's been a theme. Totally. 
how long into kind of doing the the solo thing did you meet Brian? Was he like always around at that point? Or? No, yeah. I didn't meet Brian until I was about twenty five. Right, and I. I sort of slept walk through college. Um, college was a pretty dark time for me. I didn't write much. I barely performed. You know, I maybe did a show a year. Yeah. And tried to gather my shit together, but actually found it pretty difficult. And then in my early 20s, I moved back to Boston from college, got an apartment, made some amazing friends, started to get into the art scene, started to find myself, and sort of got my feet on the ground enough that I started to look for a band, because I thought I needed a band. And I was so, un- I mean, I was so uh, unimaginative. I just was like, well, if you're going to be a songwriter, you need a bass player and you need a guitar player and you need a drummer. Those are the ingredients of a band because yeah. I speak band and that's what a band is. And so I started auditioning bassists and drummers because I figured that was a good place to start. And I was only about a month or two into the auditioning drummers and bassists era of my life. And, you know, I jammed with a few people and even played shows with a few people, but it just wasn't quite right. And people didn't quite understand what to do or how to play. And then I met Brian and it was like, oh, yeah, you, (laughs) you, you fucking get me. And Brian was like, dude, you get me. Let's be a band. And and it's a little-known chapter of the Dresden Dolls that back in the day, Mm. in that first six months or year of being a band, we actually had a guitar player and a bassist. Yeah, right. And then we were like, we don't need a guitar player and a bassist. We're just awesome. We don't don't need it. The drums and the piano is not just enough. It's more than enough. It's good. We're good. So let's just tour like this. And we, we, we ditched our rotating guitarists and bassists, and we just... Trimmed it down to a duo. When and where was the first Dresden Dolls show? The very first Dresden Dolls show was probably at my house because yeah, we used right. to play my house parties. And before we were the Dresden Dolls, we actually were we were called Out of Arms for our first couple of shows. Okay. And our first show at an actual space that wasn't like my house where I threw parties was a place called the Zeitgeist Gallery. It was this bizarre art gallery in Central Square. Um, near Harvard Square. And, you know, we didn't, it took us ages before we played an actual music venue. We were playing lofts and friends' houses and birthday parties and, like, you know, clothing stores. Like, anywhere where we could plug in and set up our PA, we would play. Yeah. And then eventually we got an actual gig. We did our first real shows at a place called the Lizard Lounge, which is like this teeny little basement club in Cambridge that fits about 100 people. Yeah. Was playing in those unconventional kind of spaces like, was that kind of beneficial in terms of being out of your element in that way means when you are put in like the quote unquote regular element of an actual show, you're just like Oh, yeah, this That's is easy. so this easy. Is so much easier. Oh, yeah. Well, also, don't forget that at the same time, I was a street performer. Yeah, of course. So I was yeah, used yeah, yeah. to just, like, fucking just take your shit and set it up. Yeah. You can take your shit and set it up anywhere. And that is still an attitude I hold to this day. Like, I don't feel many spatial boundaries. <laughs> like, yeah. You can do anything anywhere. Um, and... And also, like, we didn't... Sort of like a street performer doesn't have the luxury of the stage safety and seats and lights and division and boundaries. You know, when you're playing in a clothing store or in your friend's living room, you just have to bring it. You're just right there and you don't 
have any tricks or facade to hide behind. You just need to be authentically good. Yeah. And that's why I I can always I, I, I always relate to musicians who are street performers because they have a comfortableness and a boldness about them that you don't get if you don't do that. It's a really good education for a musician. Yeah. Were you touring much before the first record came out? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Dresden Dolls had probably played at least a hundred, you know, 50 to 100 shows before we got picked up by a label and started touring for real. Yeah. What were those early shows like in terms of, like, putting yourself out there and, like, with, with, with nothing to sell, you know? It's just like, oh, have you heard this band? No, no, I haven't. They yeah. literally have nothing out. I mean, we were on fire. We yeah. were on fire, and Brian and I, one of the things that I still love about him and one of the things that we really had in common and still have in common is we are emotionally and physically and spiritually incapable of phoning in a show. Yeah. Like, the minute you stick us on stage, we are just... We're just filled with the spirit of fuck everything. (laughs) And there's no... There were no casual shows. There was no, oh, we just have to go play this gig. Like, even if we were playing a shitty gig in a shitty bar in some weird city where a random friend had a band and an opening slot, it didn't matter if there were six people in the audience. We would just bring it and beat the shit out of our instruments and almost just do it for each other. Mm. Like, even if we didn't have anybody else, we were there to just rage at each other and people would watch. (laughs) It was just (laughs) like, you get to watch us do this. And, And there was also something really, like there was a camaraderie between me and Brian that's hard to explain, but like, it was just us in a car. We didn't have any help. We didn't have any money. You know, we had literally a box of hand-burned CDs and T-shirts that we had hand-stamped. That was our merchandise. And we did everything ourselves for a really long time. Yeah. And we loved it, you know. And it caught on quick. After we had played 10 or 20 shows in Boston, we had an actual fan base you know, and all of a sudden we were looking out into the crowds and seeing people that we didn't know, like yeah. friends of friends of friends. And I was like, oh, my God, strangers are actually yeah, right? here. That's the classic DIY, like, you know, you've made it when people you don't know are coming right. to the shows. But actually, the more poignant moment wasn't just seeing those strangers, but... When they knew the words? That was, that was significant, but actually it was having people who didn't know us come up to us and and want to talk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, there was this whole part of the job that I didn't realize was part of the job, which is people coming up to me, people of all genders coming up to me saying, I need to tell you my rape story. I need to tell you about my dad's suicide. I need to tell you about what happened to me last week. I know that you'll understand because I love your record and I've been listening to your music and I want to talk to you. Wow. And that was happening every night. And that, That's a lot to take in for a 25-year-old. But you know what? I loved it. And you know why I loved it? Because all of a sudden I did not feel so alone. Right. And Brian and I still to this day love meeting people because 
even if it means sitting at a table for two hours and like signing a bunch of stuff for strangers, it's not really about that. It's about yeah. it's about we're not alone. Yeah. And we are right now doing we're not alone time. That's it. And we fucking all need that so badly. Absolutely. So this goes on for two albums, two, like, seemingly endless world tours, hundreds and hundreds of shows all around the place. At what stage do you kind of realise that what the two of you have had, at least at that point, kind of run its course? Well... What an interesting way to ask it, because I don't think Brian or I ever felt that it had run its course, but we knew we were burned out. Yeah. And it's different. Uh, neither Brian or I ever looked at each other and said, we've said everything we have to say. The Dresden Dolls have had its heyday. Mm. It's time to move on to other things. But we were driving each other fucking batshit. Yeah. One of the things that I really do regret is that we were so excited and so hungry that we never rested. Yeah. And we we had classic band burnout. Yeah. We just like too many too many days a year on a tour bus, too many you know, too many facets of real life and the things that buoy you and support you like your actual relationships at home disintegrating and falling apart because we were just living on the road and we were always too busy and we were always overburdened and we were always overcommitted and we were always overstressed and we were always sick and we were always tired but we were still always saying yes to the next gig and the next gig and the next festival and to the next opportunity because we were so excited because we'd worked so hard and we just burned the fuck out yeah but we both had a lot to say yeah yeah, like that was not the problem but we we got to the point where we, we were barely speaking to each other because we were just so burned on each other. Yeah. And it's not like other band dynamics where there's like a buffer in between or no. anything because it's directly just the two of you no all buffer. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some real upsides and real downsides to being in a duo. Yeah. And I mean, it's cheaper. There's less schedules to juggle. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of uh, intensity. Yeah. It's just you guys. Yeah. So, it, you know, there's a reason that duos tend to flame fast and burn fast. Um, that being said, you know, Brian and I never got to a fuck you forever state of things like, yeah. say, Morrissey and Johnny, Johnny Marr, Marr yeah. or Pink Floyd or, I don't know, name a John Lennon McCartney yeah. of, like, I will fuck you and I will never work with you again. We both knew... We were both smart enough to know that what we really needed was fallow (laughs) earth so that things could, you know, having burned, things could actually just take seed and regrow. Yeah. Um, And neither of us knew how long it would take. And actually, we figured out about how long. It took about 10 years. Yeah. (laughs) And we're pretty much ready to get it going again. Yeah. Um, and we've never stopped playing together. I mean, the funny thing yeah. is, even though the Dresden Dolls stopped... Because there's always stopped, been like reunions every couple years. Because yeah. we still fucking love playing with each other, and a yeah. Dresden Dolls show is always an amazing show. I mean, the yeah. Dresden Dolls just don't do a bad show. It's impossible. Um, so it's always a pleasure and always a joy wherever we play and whatever we do. Mm. And some you know, and some of the songs, like uh, as opposed to not aging well, like... They age like a fine wine. Like some yeah. of the songs that we were doing in 2005 couldn't be more 
relevant and resonant now yeah. in a way that almost it feels like people didn't even get back in 2005 and now it's like look look yeah, yeah, this yeah. is what we were saying yeah. listen 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 so we're really really excited to, to make new music Tell, talk me through the transition back into being Amanda Palmer not Amanda Palmer from the Dresden Dolls being Amanda Palmer you're putting out your first solo record you are you know, you're touring around without Brian for the first time in years and years and yeah. years. And, you know, this is familiar, but it's also very new at the same time. What is that process like for you in terms of putting yourself out there again and ostensibly reintroducing yourself? Well, I never had a giant blueprint or game plan. My first solo record started as a fantasy idea that I had when I was on the last leg of Dresden Dolls touring, yeah. <clears throat> which would have been in, like, 2006, seven. Yeah. And I was like, get me out of here. Fuck this. I'm, we're so burned out. Brian is driving me crazy. I'm driving him crazy. We can't make any decisions together anymore. All I wanted was freedom and liberation to be able to do what I wanted without having to run it by some other motherfucker. Yeah. And my original plan was to take this little batch of songs that I had, because I only had a little batch of songs, and I remember what they were. They were, they were ampersand, point of it all, Blake says, and I think maybe one or two others. And that was it. I yeah. just had this little pile of songs, and I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a solo piano EP. Yeah. Like, I am solo, hear me roar. That's my plan. Yeah. And then I kept writing a couple more songs. And then Ben Folds got in touch with me and said, hey, the Dresden Dolls are awesome. If you guys ever need a producer, can I produce you? And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm thinking about doing a solo record. And he was like, I'll do it. And I was like, no way, you're Ben Folds. Holy shit. And so, and at that point, I had almost an album's worth of material. So what was going to just be a little solo piano, no frills EP turned into a massive record made mm. by Ben Folds yeah. in Nashville at his studio with huge production and strings and band and bells and whistles. And that turned into Who Killed Amanda Palmer, which was my first solo record. Yeah. But I was also stuck on my major label. And that was a whole era of pain and uh, woe yes. and misery. And going through that period of time with the major label, with management fuck-ups, with all the learning and growing of, you know, I'm off on my own and I'm not part of a posse anymore sort of dropped me off where I've continued, which was in the world of crowdfunding. Yeah. So I fought really hard to get off the major label after that album and everything that I experienced, like the real dark underbelly of major label land, yeah. up to and including, you need to change the way you look. And I was like, fuck you, no fucking way. And then the first thing I wanted to do after that was just like do a crazy cockamamie no major label would ever let me do this project so that's when I crowdfunded my Radiohead record Yeah, I was just like I'm going to do whatever I want I'm going to just do a ukulele collection of Radiohead songs because I can Yeah, and that was my first crowdfunded project and I just did it right off my website I didn't even use Kickstarter Yeah, and that ushered in the door to crowdfunding um, Theater is Evil which was the next big big record that I did and somewhere yeah. in the middle there I did Evelyn Evelyn which was my side project with Jason Webley yeah. and I did my Australian Amanda Palmer Goes Down Under record which yeah. was sort of like a hodgepodge collection of live stuff and studio stuff yeah. all written down here or recorded down here yeah 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 
What are those creative processes like going from thing to thing, like collaborating directly one-on-one with someone like Jason or, you know, doing literally everything yourself or bringing in a band like you did for Theatre is Evil? Like, uh, does your approach change as you're varying from project to project or do you go in on everything the exact same way? Well, I kind of go in on everything the exact same way, which is like, what does this need to be and what does it need to sound like and so who do I call? Yeah. And, you know... In the case of me and Jason, like the whole album that we put out, it's called Evelyn Evelyn, and it's a concept record. Yeah. And it started as a pun. I mean, we were just hanging out at my house, and we were like, uh, what were we talking about? I think I was telling him about the Dresden Dolls, uh, the, uh, all of the potential names for the Dresden Dolls that wound up in the trash. Yeah. Because there were a few. And one of, the, one of the potential band names was Finishing School. I, there was a little while where I wanted to call us The Left. And I also, for a split second, wanted to call us Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Such a bad in-joke that almost no one would get unless you were raised in the 80s and you watched The Brady Bunch. <laughs> and then there was also a moment where I thought that a good band name would be 1111 because I was obsessed right. with 1111 on the clock, Yeah, which Jason was too. And then one thing led to another, and I was like, oh, we could have a twin sister band called Evelyn Evelyn. And Jason was like, yeah, they could be conjoined. And we were like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. We were like, yeah, let's just do it. Yeah. And so we, did a, we started out just doing a little song, and then it grew into an album. But mostly that project happened mm. because I wanted to hang out with Jason. Sure. Were you surprised at the reaction that that got? Because, you know, there were some obviously pretty upset people deemed in it, like ableist and you know kind of was deemed problematic as many of your things have been I don't know like you were talking about like earlier like if you saw that someone didn't like your song you'd like shrivel up inside you know a lot of the stuff that you've done has had you know that very public negative react is it still the same feeling when you see someone disagrees or you know has an issue with something that you've done does it still kind of make your stomach turn or is it kind of the well, point go past the point of caring like what is it like for you now? Some of it is past the point of caring, but it also really depends what the person is attacking. Right. No one attacked the material, the songwriting, the production, or the actual record when we put out Evelyn Evelyn. Yeah. The only thing people had a problem with was the fact that Jason and I were two people pretending to be conjoined twins, and that was considered ableist. Yeah which I just don't agree with. There's a lot of art and there's a lot of fiction that uses differently abled people in a lot of ways, and that's what fiction is. And I would have had different, really different feelings and really different sensitivities if someone had come and said, this album's okay, but the songwriting's really shit. Or, like, yeah. it's too bad that Amanda and Jason can't actually sing. Or, it, like, it's a pity that, like, the percussion on the album's really awful because the rest of it's really good. Different criticism moves me in different ways. Right. And I mean, that was also one of those moments where I, I stood back and assessed, you know, both Jason and I did. We really had to stand back and go like, well, wait, is, is what we're doing okay? Where do we stand? Is, what, what, like, what isn't, isn't fair? And who do we talk to? And who do we believe? And what do we believe? And what are the boundaries of a creative license and, and art? And what's allowed to be art? And what's not allowed to be art? And what's allowed to be fiction? And what's not allowed to be fiction? And one of the things, I mean, this is a slight tangent, but one of the things that I've loved about being married to Neil is we spend a lot of time batting these conversations around and, like, figuring out what we believe. Yeah. 
Because sometimes you don't even realize what you believe because no one's made you think about it. Yeah. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time thinking about what art is or what fiction is or what pretend is or what okay is until someone comes yelling at you that something that you've done is not art or is not okay or is not allowed. And then first you have the like, hey, you know, like back off, instantly defensive, you know, of course I'm right, of course you're wrong. And then usually you warm up and you're like, well, wait, maybe you're partly right. Maybe there's something to be learned or discovered or progressed here so that the next time around, you know, this isn't even so much about right and wrong. It's more about the palette that I'm using and understanding what the palette of art is. Yeah. Because no one's ever going to have a good answer about what's right and wrong and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And one of the most beautiful things about art is, guess what? Like, there's no art court. You're never really allowed to take your project to art court and say, is it art? Is it not art? Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? There's the court of public opinion and there's the court of Twitter. Every artist should grow. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely songs that I've written and lyrics that I've written. You know, not that I would take them back and rewrite history. I don't think that that would be wise. But would I write them again? I doubt it. Yeah, sure. They were insensitive at the time. I get that now. Yeah. And maybe they weren't even really insensitive at the time, but given how... these words or these meanings or these tropes have morphed. They now mean something in 2019 that they didn't in 2000. Yeah. And so I need to evolve and I need to be listening and learning. And every artist should be doing that. It's part of the job. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's obviously played into your last few years in particular. Like, as a public persona, you know, you've gotten publicity for not getting publicity. You know, like, there's been a whole cycle of of that, like, especially most recently. Do you feel like you're at a point now where for every bad thing that's gone wrong, you're, like, you're trying to find the, you know, the positives in those situations and, like, trying to learn and navigate and kind of figure out what to learn from each situation and stuff like that? Always. Yeah. I'll never go so far as to say that anything happening to me is bad. I just don't especially given everything I've gone through and like all the doors and trap doors and corridors and escape ladders and many, 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 many perspectives that I've taken on everything from the material I write to the things I say on Twitter to what I talk about in the press to all of it. Um, Anytime anything happens, it's good because I'm always just moving forward with it and figuring out what I believe. You know, one of the hardest, hardest eras of my life was 2012 and 2013 when I got an immense amount of grief and blowback for a whole bunch of months running. First for using Kickstarter, period. I got a ton of grief from the music industry. Then for my crowdsourcing practices then for writing a poem about the Boston bombing. And it just felt relentless. But I also look back at that era. It fucked me up, but it also really, really galvanized me. After hitting a total low ebb and a nadir and a dark night of the soul in a lot of ways that year, I really had to stop and go, who am I what am I doing and what do I believe? Yeah. Because I have to figure that out first if anything else is going to make sense. And that's when I wrote my TED Talk. 
Right. And I wrote my book. Yeah. And I wouldn't have written my TED Talk or my book if I hadn't had to, A, figure that stuff out, explain it to myself. Yeah. And then explain it to a bunch of other people because sometimes you can't figure out what you think until you tell someone. Yeah, sure. And all of that changed my life dramatically. It just changed who I was, how I operate, how I comport myself, how I deal with people. It, it really, you know, when I say galvanized me, I feel like I'm forged in the flames of that year. And yeah. I wouldn't ever take it back because it made me so incredibly strong. Because I had to really define my belief system. I didn't even yeah. know I had one. Yeah. And then I was forced to figure it out and then defend it. You know, I mean, I've certainly made mistakes and there's a ton of stuff that I wouldn't defend. But there are a few things that I would defend to the death. And I had to figure out what those things were and why they were so important to me. Yeah. And then that gave me a sense of self that I hadn't had before. Sure. Okay, so we'll wrap it up here. But before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests. And now it is your turn. I want to know about the best and the worst shows that you have ever played. For me or for somebody else? Ooh, okay. In, in general, it could be by yourself, it could be with the dolls, it could be in any context whatsoever. What comes to mind when you think about the best and the worst times you've been on stage? To find stage. Could it be anything? Yeah. Any like, music playing yeah, for yeah, any other being? Yeah, sure. It sounds like you want to get into something specific that isn't. No, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure. I mean, uh, I mean, people have asked me this question a lot, and I always find it really difficult to answer because there's so many, there's so many things that can make a gig good. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple recent ones just from this tour that I think are up there in the top five. I just did this show in Portugal in Braga. Mm-hmm. I was having a really, really, really shitty week, and it was sort of a one-off show. I had to fly in from London to Portugal. And I just leveled with the audience. I told them I was going through one of the shittiest days. And the entire audience group hugged me. Mm. Just like hundreds of Portuguese people just literally enveloped me in a massive theater-sized group hug. It was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I signed after that show, and I, I cannot tell you how actually really pleasant it is <laughs> to have tons of Portuguese people just coming up to you, looking at you straight in the eye, going, I got you. We got you. We got you. Yeah. One after another, one after another. That was pretty amazing. And I also had an amazing teeny mini gig a couple weeks before that in Ireland. It was my first time playing in Limerick. Right. I'd never played there before. Yeah, yeah. And the night before the show, I got an email from a nurse who was in a hospice right down the road. And there was a woman there named Sinead who was supposed to come to the show and had a ticket and had been looking forward to it more than anything. But she was too sick. She couldn't make it out of bed. She couldn't get to the show. She was dying that week. And so I took my ukulele over there and I played her a show. Yeah. Wow. And, it, and it was the best. And, and her husband was there and her two little kids. And she died a few days later. And that, that was probably the best gig of my tour. Wow. That's, that's huge. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of responsibility to take on, you know. Uh, and, you know, worst gigs are hard because, like, 
you know, the worst gigs are not memorable. They just no. suck and you pack up your shit and you go. But, you know, sometimes the worst gigs are really good because, again, they like they teach you a kind of a performer perseverance that a good gig doesn't. Mm. Playing a bad gig is hard. Playing a bad gig and being up there and still caring, especially when, you know, the worst gigs are usually the gigs where, like, no one's paying attention. Yeah. You're opening up for some band and everyone's just out there talking and yawning and buying their beer and waiting for you to be done because yeah. they're not there to see you. You know, the Dresden Dolls got forced into a, a support slot once that we really didn't want to do. And every night felt like pulling teeth. And and again, like, I wouldn't take any of it back. Like, it just mm. felt like it taught us how to have performance balls of steel. And that get wasn't a the f- tour, was it? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> the band was great. Their fans were tough. Yeah. <laughs> Well, whatever happened to them anyway? <laughs> oh, he's on Broadway now. Oh, um, yeah, you hear it? It's, it's in <laughs> <sighs> the album is There Will Be No Intermission. It is out now. It will be out still by the time that you hear this. We and didn't even talk about the album. No. <laughs> we didn't even get there. No, it's out there. You can have a listen. We should talk about it for two seconds. <laughs> it is the point of me being here in Australia. How have you found playing those songs live? Because fucking incredible. Yeah? Oh, my God. Because I'm, like I'm, I, I was fucking exhausted listening to it. I can't imagine what it's like playing it every night. It's like a four-hour therapy session every You're single night. You're playing for four hours? Yeah. Fuck off. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, my God. There's an intermission. There is. Didn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, look. <laughs> I'm going to be really Australian. No. Look. No. Um... I, I it, it, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about, it feels like it took me my whole career to get to the point where I could make a, a record this honest. Yeah. And then being able to get up and play it for people feels really fucking liberating and hard. I yeah. mean, I cry every night. It's hard to make it through a lot of those songs without crying, and it's hard to make it through a lot of those stories without crying. But also, it's really really what's the word i'm looking for enjoyable is just not quite right cathartic it's it is cathartic and it's really it's like it's pleasurable to play songs that are that personal that are about abortion that are about miscarriage that are about all of these taboo subjects and to get up there and do it with no shame and watch people in the audience really connect with the material and really care and really see the relief on all these people's faces when they go, oh my God, thank God you're talking about this stuff. I thought it was just me. Yeah, yeah. There's just satisfying was the word that I was looking for. It's so fucking satisfying. It's just the most satisfying thing. And it's it's exhausting. But, you know, it's a tour, so it began and it'll be over. And then when it's over, there'll be something new. Yeah. Whenever you're hearing this, Amanda will probably be playing a show at some point, at some place. So go check it out. I am playing all over Australia. Yes, Um, indeed. Sydney, Darwin, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne... I'm on my way to Tasmania right now, so by the time this comes out, it might be over. Brisbane, Blue Mountains. Yeah. It's all happening. Canberra. 
And then I'm just projecting here, but you're going to leave, come back, and then bring Brian back with you, and then it'll all start again. That's the dream. That's the dream. That's the dream. Hopefully we'll be living the dream sometime soon. Amanda Palmer, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being a friend. I'm David Jamjong, and all my friends are about it. 